Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast, episode 82. Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Jack Mountain Bushcraft School founder and master main guide, Tim Smith. I'm your host, Tim Smith. I'm a registered master main guide and have been a full-time outdoor instructor and guide since founding the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School in 1999. We help people become more skilled, more knowledgeable, more experienced, and more confident in the natural world through our bushcraft and guide training semester programs and multi-week canoe and snowshoe expeditions. You can check out the show notes to all of our podcasts at blog.jackmtn.com. If you're interested in learning more about our college-accredited and GI Bill-approved programs, visit the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School on the web at jackmtn.com. And check out our online network and digital learning academy at bushcraftschool.com. So welcome everybody. We are going to dual release this on the Wilderness and Wellness podcast as well as the Jack Mountain Bushcraft podcast. I am speaking with Ron Walling today. How are you doing, Ron? Yep. Good. Doing well, Tim. And uh, Glad to have you on my podcast and excited to be on yours. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's fun to talk. We've never met. We've never spoken before this. So this is the miracle of modern technology. Absolutely. Or somehow they've flattened you and shrunk you down and stuck you into like a <laughs> computer monitor, which, you know, you know that's possible too. <laughs> not too long ago, I believed things like that, but not anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, this is fun. I've, um, I've, I've really uh, looked up to you, Tim, for a long time with what you're doing with the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School and your podcast. And um, it's reached me all the way out here in the West. And uh, I've had a hankering to get out there and, and join you in some classes ever since then. And someday I'm going to make that happen cool. when things uh, calm down a little bit in life, which I know we all the say feeling. <laughs> I, uh, I was talking with somebody recently. Uh, I don't live where we run our field school programs, right? That's our field school. Right. It's remote. There's not a lot there. So when I'm not working, I'm home with my wife and two kids. And I was thinking that over the last 10 years, I've spent less than seven days like hanging around the field school doing things. Because then, right. you know, the second you're not working, you're not working, get home. I need somebody to pick up <laughs> this kid and, you know, drop him off. And you're like, well, so I'm the same way. You know, I, I haven't been to any uh, big, you know, rendezvous or anything in almost a decade. And I sort of look at them on the Internet and I think, well, the kids are a little older. You know, I'm going right. to I keep seeing this thing where these people like live in vans and it's a big i guess it's a big thing and i don't know i i did that you know when i had a, a truck and i was single when it, when it wasn't cool exactly <laughs> i always do things when they're not cool and then after i do right. them like they become cool and i'm still not cool somehow right <laughs> but <laughs> i funny look, how that works yeah exactly but uh yeah i look forward to you know hitting the road for a season and um almost got away with it this winter we're currently like selling our our house in in new hampshire so we're gonna you know big changes coming and right. um i'm looking forward to you know throwing a couple of boats on a trailer and and hitting the road for a month or so and nice maybe next year but you know i've been saying that for 10 years now <laughs> same here man like maybe next year i'll get to do this <laughs> And I've been saying that for years about winter count, and finally, I'm actually going to go to winter count next month. I am so excited. It's going to be amazing. Nice. Yeah, I've never been. I've been to Rabbit Stick once in 1999, and, and yeah. the one time they ran the, uh, the name's escaping me, but when Dave Westcott ran the, the Bushcraft um, Gathering, Woodsmoke. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Like 2012 or 2013, I right. made out to that, and nice. And since then, um, I've been west <coughs> of the Connecticut River maybe one time, which is the it splits New Hampshire and Vermont and then cuts across ah, Connecticut. So, right. you know, I'm from, I'm a Eastern New Englander. Uh, you know, as far as my geography knowledge goes, there's like Maine, New Hampshire. You don't want to go all the way south to Massachusetts. And then you head west, there's the Connecticut River, like Vermont. Then I right. think there's like, I don't know, Detroit. And then some mountains in California, right? And I don't know. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and out east, I mean, anything east of the Mississippi is just people, right? I mean, that's... that's yeah, exactly. <laughs> I jokingly uh, like to tell the story, like at our place in northern Maine, the county that we're in is larger than Connecticut and Rhode Island combined, which isn't that big. But, you know, people right. think of the map of the of the eastern U.S. and they always think it's like that giant city that goes from D.C. to Boston. And <laughs> But where we are, like... I can walk to New Brunswick by crossing one road. It's 90 miles west from our driveway to the Quebec border. And then once you get across the St. Lawrence, there is nobody up there. Like, so it's, so yeah. the map in my mind is like, I'm on the Southern edge of it. And as you go up, there's like, here's Labrador and you know, New right. England and, and yeah, there's nice. nobody around. Nothing. So it's, <laughs> That's it's awesome. pretty sweet. But, you know, I remember, being a young guy living in Alaska and you'd see these huge on the map, right? Huge areas with nothing there. And then you realize, Oh, there's nobody there. Cause there are no resources there. Right. It's just like, right. it's a tundra. There's, you know, you couldn't live there. Sort right. Of thing. And so it's cool being in the East that, you know, I've got to go pretty far North to get North of the tree line, like tip of the Ungava peninsula. So there's this huge swath of country. with not oh, a lot of people Sounds there. amazing. It is. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. So you spent some time in Alaska, like t tell for our listeners, for the Wilderness and Wellness podcast, what, what got you started and interested in wilderness living skills in general and, so and the, all that? The story is I live, I grew up and still live on a small lake in New Hampshire. And um, I was, I think, four years old. There's a little natural history museum on the other side of town. And I think I'm about four years old. I'm in there with my dad and there's a dugout canoe that they found on the bottom of our lake. So the way dugout oh, wow. canoes work, they get the biggest white pine trees you can find, and that's our biggest tree in this part of the world. You chop it down, probably into the water. Then you have, if you've ever made a burn bowl or something like that, basically right. a dugout canoe is a giant burn bowl. Mm. And then it lives on that waterway, but ice messes with things when it goes out. So at the end of the season, yes, you, you sink the thing and fill it up with rocks. And then the water keeps it, it sits on the bottom over the winter, the water keeps it like preserved. And then in the spring, you swim out, you pull the rocks out and it floats back up. So this wow. thing was sitting on the bottom full of rocks and some kids found it in the 1950s in front of a summer camp. So I remember being there and, and it's still there. Uh, I went and saw it last summer, but uh, I asked my dad, he's like, oh, you see this? They found this like 100 yards or 200 yards from, from where we live. I was like, well, who made that? And he's like, well, the Indians made it. And I'm like, well... You know where did they go? What you know? Yeah, where are they now? Kid, like, and I was just like, oh my god! Like this whole other culture lived here before, and it, it wow. wasn't that long ago, right? Like this, it's right, a boat. Right. It's still sitting there in the water. So then, you know, researching it, find out a lot about the uh, the native tribes in New England and all the stuff that went on. You know, there was a huge plague in fifteen. Uh, 15, no, 16, 15, 16, mm. 17, and 95% of them died. But anyway, just from an early age, just super interested in the traditional cultures and what they were doing. Um, 
you know, it led me to study cultural anthropology in college. It wasn't the degree that I wanted. The degree I wanted was to study like hunter gatherer life. Works, right. right. But you know, right. you, you, you sort of take what you can get, I guess. And, uh, it was better than sitting through like economics classes or something. Where you're <laughs> That's for sure. Around and, and then I, you know, finished that degree and, um, <laughs> was just always interested. So I, uh, bought a $500 travel trailer and dragged it up to Alaska for a year. Um, nice. And was just, you know, living the lifestyle was into primitive skills was a thing then and was really into it. And, uh, you know, met some people up there. We actually did a 30 day primitive camp out in the, um, Kenai national wildlife refuge in 1995. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And then after being up there for a while, decided I can wanted to, uh, Still live early, didn't want to wash any more windows and was tired of pounding nails. So went back to school for a master's in education figure and I would teach school in a rural location with good fishing. And, uh, <laughs> you know, after receiving that degree, um, I had met a few people, had studied with Morris Kahansky uh, when I was in Alaska. And I knew a couple of Maine guides that made a living working outdoors and Figured, you know, I'm young, I don't have any wife or kids, uh, why don't I try doing this for a year, and then I'll go get the regular job. And <laughs> 20, that was 21, 22 years ago now. So right, still, still doing it. Still plan on, you know, eventually, you know, I'll, I'll go get games. Someday I'll get a real job. <laughs> but for now, I guess no thanks. I, I, but the, and the, the funny thing is the longer you work for yourself, like you become unemployable, right? You know, the, right. just the yeah. idea of like somebody walking in here and telling me, you've got to get your TPS report in by three. Like I, how do, how would I take them seriously? Right. You just probably it's not going to fly. Yeah. You just laugh at them and say, yeah, whatever. That'll happen. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So That's um, the dream right there. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, while I would like to say that I attribute my longevity and success to, you know, uh, good looks and strong brain, you know, luck has so much to do with, with anything in, in business and in small business. And, you know, I was just super fortunate to sort of come around right when the internet was, when people were getting it, you know, like, right, uh, and, right. And, you know, uh, I like to tell the story about my brother, the greatest gift he ever gave me. He worked, he's a couple years older than me, worked in the, in the internet industry at the time. And I had this big idea and I said, Hey, uh, I call him up and I said, Hey, I'm thinking about putting up a website for this business I'm starting and thinking he's like, Oh, I'll help you. That'll be, we can work on it together. And he's like, Oh, that's a, <laughs> that's a good idea. You should go down to the, uh, to the bookstore and get a book on how to do that. And I was like, <laughs> good luck with that. Yeah, I was like, you son of a bitch, but, uh, <laughs> But, you know, it did force me to learn how to do it myself. And, and right. uh, you know, you think in this industry, I, I don't really know anymore, but for a number of years, every year there'd be 100 new schools on the Internet. And a year later, 98 of them are gone. And, you know, right. a, a lot of that, and I, I knew guys that had this happen, was they had some website guy. It was always like a, it's a shady deal, right? Like early 2000s <laughs> shady deal. Like he's Back a friend of a friend of a friend. And like they never knew how to get a hold of him. So like, you know, it's 2003 and their calendar still says like 1996 or right. something on it. And, you know, all those things are sort of, they're, they're not a really a big deal anymore. But, you know, back then it was, it was hard. Yeah. Like we were talking Absolutely. before we hit record, like everything's so easy now, right? Like, yeah. Go get a smartphone and you can build websites and record video and podcast and 
Yeah, the barrier to entry now is just it's the, it's not there. Is if you have just a little bit of, you know, oomph to stick with it and and learn things yourself. Yeah, which I think is no awesome. Brainer. Like I love. Yeah. Totally. Um, as I said, we've never met. Uh, I Absolutely. found I don't know how I found your podcast, but I found it and started listening to it. And you know, like I love the fact that. Again, you know, when I started the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School, bushcraft, people thought it was like topiary, right? Like, oh, you're the guy who like makes the shrub look like Mickey Mouse or, or you know, whatever. <laughs> and, and, you know, for a number of years, they'd look at you like you had three heads. And now it's just cool that, you know, the idea is kind of firmly cemented. Some would say that, you know, maybe it's jump the shark of late with all of the sort of bushcraft chic and, you right. know, like $700 pants and you know, $9 million <laughs> knives and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's still neat to, you know, it's like a common bond that you and I have having never met in person, right? Absolutely. A, sh- a shared interest. And I think it's awesome. And I love that there's a yeah. little barrier to entry because I love hearing people tell stories, right? I loved, you know, I'm a, uh, you interviewed Tony Nestor. Um, he's yeah. a, like an yep. internet friend of mine. We've never met in person, uh, but I've always respected his work. And then I read all of his books. So I got a Kindle a few years ago and we, you know, we go on oh, nice. two week snowshoe trips where there's nothing to do and it's dark at four. So you're, yep. you know, you're laying around in the hot tent and I think I've read all of his books and now I've got this mad like man crush on him as an author. So. <laughs> Reading about Mitch Kearns and exactly, trackers. Yep, yep. <laughs> I've read the one about the girl, the secret service agent, Carly. I can't remember the title of the book, but the Carly Simmons mm-hmm. one, it might be her name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably read it, I don't know, four winters in a row where, oh, yeah. you know, you know, where I know I got like four nights of, uh, of wall tent reading, you know, to read the whole series. And it's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's amazing. And, and even, you know, even with Tony, as far as the barrier to entry in that, I mean, he's he's published, um, you know, quite a few paperback, you know, hard copy books. But that was was him being able to just go on Amazon. And, and you know, granted, there, there was a lot of work that went into figuring that out. But again, just goes back to that barrier of entry thing. He's able to to get those awesome novellas out there and, and we get to read them on Kindles sitting in wall tents. Right. Yeah, I probably have every printed book that he ever published yeah it's it's amazing everything's pretty easy and i mean that was the dream when all the tech guys started their big tech companies was let's make it so like the you know the hard part is coming up with the good information you know right the hard part isn't like the behind the scenes technical you know and right good good on them for doing it well done bill gates with your absolutely (laughs) (laughs) if you're listening which you're not (laughs) 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 <laughs> so tell 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 me more about the jack mountain bushcraft school like you started that in 98 you said and um i guess what i'm most interested in is uh kind of your underlying philosophy with it and and how because because to me it's a different animal from just about anything else out there so what what sets you know your approach apart from others i think we were the first ones to do like a long-term immersion program and i think that's the you know repetition doing things day after day after day that's the special sauce that we have you know it's Mm -hmm. paying attention to small details over time that's the key to learning and you know minimizing variables there are other things um but in 2001, you know, I'd run a couple of week-long courses, a lot of weekend courses. And then in 2001, I was working with my friend Dan Fisher, who was a lobsterman half the year. And then half the year, we would kind of work together 
putting together week-long courses and things and he had a 27 acre farm and he would have people who were uh, apprentices, I think was the term he called it, where they would come and stay for a month or two and, you know, pay him a little bit mm -hmm. of money. And But they were always on different schedules, right? Like so-and-so's been here for a month. He sort of gets it. Uh, he's leaving tomorrow. And then two new guys are coming. So there was never any continuity. There was never any sort of let's mm -hmm. plan something awesome. So we were sitting around having coffee one day and uh, said, what if, you know, what if we put everybody on the same schedule and, and ran, you know, like a, I think it was the, the first few we did were 12 weeks long. What if we ran a 12 week course that's sort of like an apprenticeship, but it would allow us to get really deep into things. And, you know, fortunately, like people starting a lot of interesting endeavors, fortunately, we were young and stupid and didn't know how hard it would be to get any traction. <laughs> so we're like, yeah, let's we'll do it next year. So we planned it, did it first year. We had five people, 12 week semester, you know, wow. we, uh, you know, a couple of weeks on snowshoes and wall tent snowshoeing up near the Quebec border, in northern Maine. We spent a couple of weeks because the first semester we ran was February, March, April. Um, those are all winter months in Maine, lots of snow. End of April, right, southern right. Maine, not as bad. So we jumped in a van, drove to Florida, and spent, I think, 10 days paddling the Florida Everglades. Um, so, you know, trying to – and, and those are the sorts of things on a longer-term program we were able to do. And also, um, you know, people have huge amounts of growth on a long program. So someone, you know, shows up, can barely hold a knife – 10 weeks later, they're spinning out bow drills, carving pack baskets, you know, paddling rapids, you know, it, and it's just, that's an amazing thing to see. And as an educator, you know, that's the, it's addictive to be there when people have that aha moment, right? So then, then, you know, did it once and uh, was able to, you know, keep the bills paid and the lights on. And, uh, you know, that was what, 48 semesters ago, 48 long-term programs ago. So just, wow. you know, grab the ball and started running with it. That's amazing. That's really cool. But again, and it, I don't think it's any, you know, it's not like we reinvented the wheel or anything. We were fortunate to sort of come on the scene and start offering this right when it was easy to, for people to find out about it. So we've right. had students, you know, the interesting thing, if we had started that in, because Dan and I had ran programs together previously, um, you know, in the, in the mid to late 90s. And, you know, you had a, you had a paper brochure. It was maybe they'd put it down at like the, the little museum in town or whatever. And, you know, you'd, you'd get a couple of people. Then here comes the Internet. And, hey, I got an email from somebody in New Zealand, you know, and, and you know, we've had people from all over the world come out because your old printed brochure and it's cheaper to put up a website than it was to print <laughs> like the crappiest brochure. Right. Uh, but, you know, your brochure, who knows who knows where it's going to end up? Who knows you know, exactly. who's going to read it? So just yep. cool, right? And and just lucky, I will say, that, that we did what we did when we did it. Well, luck is the the, meanie, the, the meeting of opportunity and preparation, right? I agree. So. I, I had a job uh, for the first three years of the TV show Naked and Afraid. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was the guy that used to interview all the people before they would go on. Uh, the show see if they really had the stuff to do it yeah and it wasn't a great process but it was their process and, and whatever but one right. of the questions i'd always ask him i'm a huge fan of ernest shackleton if you've never read about his ill-fated antarctic expedition it's it's really good reading um mm. but anyway i read and how they were interviewing people to go on their to go on their expedition right so i always threw right. in a couple of weird questions and i asked nice. everybody before the interview ended would you rather be lucky or good you know, and, and, you know, a lot of them, they're used to sort of, 
you know, how do you do this? How do you do that? But then, you know, a lot right, of people are like, right. oh, I don't know. The they didn't know how to answer that. that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I would rather be lucky than good any day of the week. Absolutely. I hear you. That's awesome. So explain the value of doing when it comes to wilderness living skills. We live in an era where people know more but have experienced less than at any time in history, right? Because of like social media and survival TV and YouTube, like it'd be hard to find somebody who's never seen, who's interested in this sort of a thing, who's never seen somebody do a bow drill, for example. Who's right. never seen this or that. But, you know, how many times have they actually done it? And, you know, I think there are, there's a huge opportunity for people to believe that they're better than they are. And the difference for us, you know, at, at, with Jack Mountain, I always like to say that expeditions are where stupid ideas go to die, right? <laughs> if we're car camping, Absolutely. if you and I are car camping at some, like, weekend rendezvous and there's going to be a guy there who's like, I'm going ultra light with my hammock. And then he's got a tractor trailer load full of crap to make his hammock warm enough for him to sleep in it, right? So it's like, you know, not really. Uh, right, and there's right. always, you know, wacky ideas about, you know, the... We make fun of them in camp all the time. Somebody will find some, like, Kickstarter for this new survival multi-tool. And there was one a few mm. years ago. It was, like, a shovel and, like, a, I don't know, a shovel and, like, a bottle opener and a digital clock and a saw. <laughs> and, like, it, so what, you, what, you, what you've got there is, like, a, a thing that's a crappy shovel. It's crappy at everything it does. Right. right, right. But man, it'll sell. But it looks cool. It looks cool, and you can shoot a great hire hire like a young kid in film school. He'll make it look awesome, and you'll you'll make a million bucks. Um, right. The difference is experience. You know, the difference between this sort of person exploring bushcraft on YouTube for the very first time, and you know, some old trapper who's been to town once in the last five years, and you know, lives off of beaver and muskrat and. And whatever mm -hmm. else, the difference is, you know, what they've d actually done. And I think in this era we live where media is saturated, you know, if you if you're just about anywhere except northern Maine, you probably have a cell phone signal. And, and I've seen it happen on courses where someone's like, oh, I'm struggling with the bow drill. Beep, beep, beep. Oh, look how this guy does it, you know. And uh, right. But, you know, watching somebody do something doesn't give you that experience we're not at the point yet technologically where you can plug in your brain and get things like muscle memory you know from observing someone else do something and i think right. that you know the 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 active component of learning and when you physically do something it, it rewires your brain you're you're building you know connected neurons there right and uh and you can just tell you know i i you can just tell when someone has experience and when they don't Right. And you told a you told a story recently, <clears throat> sorry, in one of your episodes about one of your native friends and and you were up on a class and a student just kept peppering with question after question after question. Can yeah. you can you re, can you retell that story? That was so, a, that was great. I love that. Yeah, this will be uh, a, a guy that works with me, Christopher Russell's actually guiding the trip up to northern Quebec this year, but we go out with these Cree, native Cree friends of mine uh, in a little village called Uje Bugamu. You know, say that 10 mm. times fast, which is just down <laughs> the road from Shibugamu. So oh, in, in nice. one day, you can travel from Shibugamu all the way to Uje Bugamu. Uh, nice. <laughs> um, you know, That's awesome. Cree words. But yeah, my friend right. David, uh, he's, uh, I think he's probably 71 or 72 now. But, you know, I mean, these guys literally born in a tent, used to travel 
you know, the seasonal travelways where they'd be up on their hunting grounds all winter, paddle canoes down to Lake Shibugamu in the summer for a big rendezvous and then head back up. So literally there's nothing this guy doesn't know about living in the woods. Right. Um, but a super neat guy and um, not a big talker. You know, the, the traditional hunting culture of they're quiet all the time and um, they just don't make a lot of noise. So this guy was asking, we were on a, a paddling trip, uh, it's 2007 or 2008, and the uh, guy asked David a couple questions about what he does in the winter. I think David answered two, maybe three questions, and then he stopped, and the guy asked him again, and he looked at him, and he said, the action will answer all of your questions, right? <laughs> and I was like, whoa, like Zen That's master. Uh, but, you know, what he's getting at is that he, David could talk all day, and the guy could fill up 30 notebooks with things that David said, but he's still not going to know how to do it. But if you go right. and do it, you don't need the 30 notebooks. Like there's little, there's things that you get. There's things that you learn by doing that there's no other way to get that information, right? Like, right. I think Morris Kahansky told me a story once, or I don't, maybe, uh, anyway, it was like there was a guy who wanted to become really good at math. So he studied math in books and became a great mathematician. And then he wanted to become a really good swimmer, so he read 50 books on swimming, went down to the lake, and drowned. Right? So the, yep. just, the idea is that, you know, with certain yep. things, that there's no substitute for experience. And, right. and reading one more book isn't going to make you better at it. Exactly. Yeah, and I think you, you've put forth the example before as well about sleeping in a shelter overnight in the cold. You know, you, you can read every book on shelter building and how to build a right shelter and spend a week long class at it and everything. But until you actually go out and do it and freeze your butt off that night and figure out what didn't work and what does work and all that, you're not going to know. You're, you're not going to learn that skill until exactly. you get out and do it. We have a thing that we do with shelters, um, you know, on our longer courses that to, to, to do a shelter well, like say if we're making hoop houses or, or, you know, name the type of shelter, it doesn't matter, but it takes four nights to really learn that shelter. Right. So you build the shelter. Maybe it's not the best job ever. Night one sucks. You're suffering. Uh, <laughs> you spend day two like, I got to fix this thing. Like that bed was terrible. You know, it's leaking on me. It's doing this. It's doing that. So night two is a little better. You know, by night three, you've got it pretty dialed in. By night four, and these are four consecutive nights, you know, so everything's fresh in your mind. By night four, right. you understand, you know something useful about that shelter. So then if you were ever going to build that shelter again, you know, whether you wanted to or maybe you just maybe your Cessna went down and you're on some remote lake and you're forced to build it again. Like you go right, right to night four shelter right away. Like that learning curve, you've had the learning curve. And that's essentially right. what the point of the exercise is. Like we can all build something that, you know, I call it the ease of superficial likeness that it's really easy to build something that looks kind of like a shelter, right? I mean, they're in every crappy right. YouTube video, every <laughs> bogus like survival TV show. And, you know, it's like yep. some, some crappy lean to or whatever. And, and right. But to make something that's going to actually work in, you know, bitter cold conditions or sometime when it's really going to matter, there's a lot that goes into it. So, yeah. and, and I use that term a lot in teaching that, you know, say if we're making a buck saw, it's easy to make something that looks like a buck saw, but if you're going to build something that's going to cut wood hour after hour, there's a lot of attention to detail that matters. So yeah, that, that ease of superficial likeness and doing things enough times to the point where, you know, you've eliminated any crappy variables that'll come back to haunt you. And th that's yeah. the special sauce, right? I, I think that, um, 
you know, for any young people listening to this, you know, getting out and doing it is, is it's the game changer. And in addition to making you better at the skill, it's going to make you amazingly more confident in your ability to pull it off. Um, Absolutely. And, and confidence is such a huge part of life. Like when you, when you believe in yourself and you know that you can do something, and, and I'm not talking about, say, false bravado here. When you know, right. like the hesitation for you 100% know that you can do that, like you live on a different planet. Your experience of life is different Absolutely. and better than 99%. Because so many people are faking it in the modern world. Yep. So we, That's I live on this small lake, and somebody asked me last summer, hey, do you think you could swim across that lake? And I said, yep. And they're like, well, how do you know? And I said, well, I've done it 37 times. Like, 38 is <laughs> not going to be a big deal, right? Right, And, and right. that's the, the beauty of experience. Like, hey, you think you can light a fire in the rain? Yep. You, you know, you think you can, you know, whatever. Add, add whatever yeah. it is. And if you've read right. 70 million books on the topic, it's not going to make you more confident than if you've done it, you know, 50 times. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I really appreciate about your education style with Jack Mountain is like, it's not a weekend show and tell course, you know, where, you know, the instructor shows how awesome they are. And then the, the students spend 10 minutes trying to do something. And, and not that there isn't some value in that, but when it comes to actually learning the skill, being out there long-term living in, you know, the environment that you're practicing the skill in long-term and, and seeing what does and doesn't work that, to me, that's where truly learning bushcraft and outdoor wilderness living skills, that's, that's like you said, that's the secret sauce. And, and it's the way it's been since the dawn of humanity, you know, um, that's why we're here because our ancestors had to figure out, uh, what does and doesn't work. And if they couldn't, they died. And, uh, yeah, that's the, that's, that's how it goes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, you know, we're training, um, you know, the next generation of guides and instructors and, and definitely with guides, like, you know, you've got to be pretty checked out if you're getting paid to take people into remote areas, right? right? And you don't want them to be, you know, you don't want to be the, the float planes flying away. You got a month to paddle until you get to the coast of Labrador. That's not when you want to find out that your guide took like a correspondence course. And, you know, <laughs> up until three weeks ago, he was a banker from New York City and he, he, right. he, he cashed in his 401k and bought a bunch of boats and, you, that's not when you want to get that information. So yeah. definitely not. <laughs> so having people who, uh, yeah, who know what they're doing and the, the way to know what you're doing is, is through experience. Um, yeah. So, so having spent a lot of time in, in the wilderness, obviously, and having students come in perhaps out of, you know, city life or, or even just being in the modern everyday society lifestyle and then coming in and, and, doing your, you know, long-term courses, being in more of a, you know, a, a low key lifestyle as far as, as that goes with being out in the wilderness and all that. I'm curious what kind of changes you may have seen in your students from like when they come to when they leave. Um, and not just in the skills, but maybe their overall personality or things like that. I, I'm, I'm curious what kind of, um, what kind of health and wellness benefits you may see of people being in the outdoors long-term like that? Uh, two things come to mind right off the bat. Number one, confidence, like we spoke about before. Mm -hmm. People are immensely more confident and in a, in a realistic and authentic manner, right? They also are usually right. keenly aware of what they don't know how to do. Um, and that's a good thing. Um, number two, um, 
understanding what differences between their needs and their wants. So we do exercises during the course, you know, before we go on a big expedition, we have people log their food intake and their water intake for a week. So log every ounce of water you drink and coffee, whatever, moisture. <laughs> so, and food for a week. And then we use that information to figure out, okay, on a trip then, this is about how much water you're going to need per day. Or, you know, this is about how many calories you need per day. But realizing, you know, when you break it all down and you're planning your food for a, you know, a week or a two-week trip where right. if you forget to bring something, there's no 7-Eleven on the corner. Um, you know, that sort of, uh, that ability to differentiate, you know, what you want versus what you need is, is, is hugely empowering for people. And I think just also having the skills of, you know, being able to cook, being able to take care of all of your basic needs, I think is, is, is hugely, hugely empowering for people, especially you're in a remote area with no infrastructure, right? Right. We haven't up to this point ever really run any disaster preparedness courses. But I mean, essentially, if someone's skilled enough to uh, travel through the wilderness with minimal kit, you know, maybe you get a one metal pot or if you're lucky, you get a Dutch oven or something and you know, no refrigeration, no running water, no this. And and then you're staying at home and the power goes out for a couple of weeks. Like you got it made, you know, like what are right. you worried about yeah. at that point? You've got it made. And we had exactly. uh, the big, the big historical event up here. Uh, I think it was 1998. We had this wicked ice storm in the Northeast. Like I knew people in Maine, they literally lost power for like three months before it came back. Wow. Like Montreal, Canada lost power for, you know, at least five days or something. So, right. but you know, people were pretty checked out. It was like the anti-Katrina. Like Katrina, they lost power and everybody's going haywire, you know. And, right. Um, and I don't know, maybe the maybe there's cultural factors as well. Like in, an, in, a, in a harsh climate, like in the north, people tend to realize that the other people around them are, are awesome to they're their best tool. They're their best friend. Right. Band members. together. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, you know, help one another. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just the idea that, you know, again, that confidence that people have as a result. And, you know, we're thinking, I'm thinking about maybe doing a, uh, a program this, this summer, like a week-long program, of just about all the systems that we use. Mm. I'm huge on systems, like what's our sanitation system, food system, you know, food preservation systems, all the things we do around camp or on the trail. Um, just because I know, I, I hear from a lot of people, like, you know, I'm not, super interested in i don't want to run away to the woods forever but you know i want to know what to do in the if the power goes out for a week or a month or you know right. whatever and i and good useful skills to have for, you know regardless of what you think is going to happen in the future um because then again you're just you're that much more confident you know you're not uh you know you're not chicken little worried every time that the you know every time the the newsman says like we could be you know, huge storm coming or we're going to war or this or that, you know, like, Oh my God. Uh, in new right. England, Oh, uh, having grown up in new England, it's, it's super funny to me. And, and I think there's a movement to ban the term, but we get these storm systems and they call them nor'easters, like a Northeast right. wind. It, it right. stalls out. It's circling. Uh, it stalls out on the coast. So it goes out over the ocean, picks up moisture, comes back, dumps it on land. So you get these huge snow events, but, Nowadays, like every snowstorm, because the news exists to frighten you so you won't change the channel, right? So right. <laughs> every storm is a nor'easter, and, and everybody runs to the store and buys all the milk, eggs, and bread. Like, I, I, don't, I don't get it, <laughs> but, 
but the you know the point of the exercise is like if if you know what you're doing and you got a few simple pieces of kit maybe a good sleeping bag you're not going to be that guy in line trying to get the last loaf of bread or jug of milk right. or, or whatever right so yeah you know uh knowledge and experience is the antidote to fear and so absolutely we, so we're looking at maybe running something like that this summer because um I think too, you know, people think, oh, off grid, off pipe, all these things. They think you're just like miserably just kind of hanging around, wishing you had like a TV and a video game controller and like a flush toilet. We like we have a blasting <laughs> camp, and I actually hate leaving and and coming back to like a modern home because there's always something breaking in a modern home that you can't fix, right? It's like, oh, right, the, right. to fix that, we need this one little plastic piece that you know it's you know. You got to order it. It takes it, five days to get here. And it costs 200 <laughs> bucks because they sell five of them a year. And, you know, exactly. if you're in camp, like, oh, the, you know, the composting toilet never breaks because it's a five gallon bucket, you know, like right. it, it, it can't break. <laughs> you know, we've got, you know, if you're drinking river water, you don't have to worry about the pipes freezing. You know, it, it's, it's just a, it's a super pleasant, relaxing, nice way of life. And I think that's, you were asking a bit ago about, you know, what are some takeaways that people have? And I mm-hmm. think that the, the modern sort of survivalist or survivalism is is sort of based on fear and uh mm. when people come out and you know they stay for a while they realize it's not a whole lot to be afraid of right like if i'm cold i can go get some more firewood and build a bigger fire you know right and you know you know it's a little harder to go pick up a frozen chicken in the woods but we got plenty of grouse and turkeys and you know there, there are solutions to all the problems and i think that level of comfort and and lack of sort of reactionary fear is a is a huge takeaway point for people yeah and that goes back to the, the confidence and the empowerment like you said um yeah, knowing you could take care of yourself out there or and, the, and the i loved think ones around you as well yeah absolutely and and a lot of that owes to the skills. And then I think, as you were saying before, I think a lot of that owes to your systems as well. Um, because when you have those systems in place, everyone knows how they operate. Everyone knows how, uh, to work them and, and, you know, how to troubleshoot them and, and whatnot. The, the skills combined with the systems, you know, just makes everything work pretty, pretty cleanly as, as you attest to. So, yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a pleasant way of life too, right? It's just like, I know I got a, you know, I got some string, I can fix anything, some string, maybe some duct tape, (laughs) you know, I can carve what I need out. You know, it's just like, there's not 800 moving pieces. And I think in the modern world, as we remove ourselves from the natural world, there's so many moving pieces and the more complex any system is, the easier it is to break. So we use a term called baselines and, you know, after living in camp for a couple of months, somebody's baseline's pretty low, right? Like, you know, they get excited if someone's throwing out like an old tarp or something like, oh, I can get my hands <laughs> on that, you know, and like, what a good thing to be excited about, you know, like, right. uh, you know, guys getting, uh, I don't know, like maybe, maybe your bed isn't soft enough. So somebody gets like a refrigerator box from the dump and puts that under their mattress to level it out. Or, you know, right. you find an old five gallon metal oil can at the dump and you're going to make a new rocket stove out of it. And just all these little things. So if your baseline's really low, then you get excited about, you know, really not, uh, real little things, you know, and, and yeah. you know, that's a, that's a good way to be, you know, to still get excited about finding a five gallon metal can at the dump. That's, you know, half full of waste oil. Like, yeah, I don't, you, maybe I don't, maybe it's not like, what are we at? Like an iPhone, like 30 now, maybe it's not an right. iPhone 30, <laughs> but you know, iPhone 30 won't, but it'll solve this stove. problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. Funny. 
So it, it, explain for our listeners a little bit more about the baselines. Cause I remember learning about that concept through your podcast and I really, really like that. So if I understand it right, it's, it's this idea of what, basically what you're comfortable with, right? Yeah. And how, you know, sort of how you live your life. So if I'm, I don't know who's some big celebrity, if I'm, uh, if I'm a big celebrity, right. And, Brad Pitt. Okay. If I'm Brad Pitt and I'm doing a movie and my trailer, you know, the hot water is like three degrees less than I like it. And, you know, there's not like a bowl of fresh grapes left out for me. And I, you know, I would <laughs> lose my mind cause that's how, that's what I demand. That's what I'm used that's to. That's your that's baseline, baseline. Yeah. Right. So people like catering to you versus, you know, find, find a homeless person, you know, living pretty rough. And, you know, their baseline is like, you know, if I can get a spot under the overpass during the rainstorm, there's not too many other people there. Like I got it made. You know, <laughs> so you think who's the, right. in order to be more resilient, you know, we can lower our baselines just by, by having different life and living experiences. So if right. your baseline is, you know, if you, if you go spend a season, you know, living kind of rough and you can't cook every meal over an open fire and that becomes your baseline, you know, you get really good at managing the fire and managing your pots and planning ahead. And then you're at home someday and the stove breaks or the, you know, if you have an electric stove and the power goes out, you're like, eh, I don't care. Like I like cooking right. outside anyway. Like I don't have to clean the kitchen. You know, like let the let the squirrels and, and birds eat all the food scraps that fall on the ground. It's one less thing to do. It's great. So it's just this idea that, you know, lowering your baseline allows you to maybe have a more uh, relaxing life because you're not demanding every latest, newest, flashy thing. So right. there's a huge, you know, philosophical benefit to, I think, having a low baseline at certain points throughout your year just so that, you know, to sort of ground yourself. And, and you hear this a lot in the popular culture, you know, people saying to spend more time in nature, get back to nature. And, and you know, right. how I interpret that is that people need to sort of realize that, you know, as a species, we are pretty resilient, but we've gotten pretty far from that. And if you yeah. voluntarily lower your baseline, then, um, you know, life is life can just be, a, you know, a bigger, more fun adventure. Right. And if nothing else, when you're in the middle of the suck, you're like, yep, you know, three more sleeps <laughs> and this trip's over, you know, or, you know, eight more hours exactly. and they get warm or, you know, <laughs> stuff right. like that. Like, you know, right. if you spend any time out on the trail, you everybody's had those experiences. The worst for us um, out on like a winter snowshoe trip and then you get a thaw. So then you're you're you lose your mobility. Right. Like last year, I think there was five and a half feet of snow in the woods when we were on our two week snowshoe trip. And then if it warms up and that gets soupy and we get a rain, like, ooh, that's pretty, yeah. pretty brutal. Like, you're just right. sitting around not doing anything. You can't go anywhere. Like, um, And then it's, you know, well, you know, at least we have this to lower our baseline and we'll laugh about it in a few weeks or there you go. whatever. So, yeah. So it's, you know, psychologically it's good. You know, physically it's good. Um, and, yeah, probably a good it, – it's just good for learning, Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it, you know, there's all kinds of philosophical ways you can take it. To me, it, it's an interesting question of, of what is happiness, you know, because, you know, as you were talking about before, it, happiness, it, it's, there's a lot of things that go into it. Of course, there's situation, there's background, you know, mental state, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, if you, if you boil it down to just experience and situation, you know, the example you gave earlier between, you know, the bum on the overpass and Brad Pitt, like that bum was 
probably happier with that overpass and Brad Pitt would be that his grapes weren't there, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so it, it's kind of a call to us, as you said, you know, to, to lower our baseline a little bit and be happier, you know, we'll, we'll be happier with a lower baseline in, in my estimation of, of how that works. I agree. And, uh, I, yeah. I, I and, do think that in this culture, the modern culture we live in, we equate comfort with happiness. Right. And that has not always been the case. I, I've read up, you know, a lot of stoic philosophy and kind of ancient philosophy and, and other cultures don't or haven't done that. And I think mm. that's one of the, you know, people think of happiness and you're like, oh, it's a, you know, I, I got a room at this hotel spa and, you know, every need is catered to and, you know, everything. Right. And, and for me personally, that's not happiness. Uh, right. And, I, you know, then I'm maybe not of the, uh, Maybe you don't fit into the mainstream there, but um, I, I do think that idea that happiness and comfort are not the same thing, like creature comforts. Absolutely. Right. No, I would tell, totally agree with you. And that, that's the beauty of the natural world is that it, it recalibrates our baseline <laughs> for Ooh, happiness. I like that. Recalibrate your baseline. That would be a great like, slogan for a course or something, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. And, you know, being out, it, it, it's a way to sort of strip away all of the extraneous fluff that comprises modern life. You know, yep. like if we're on the trail, we've got to make a certain number of miles today. Like, you know, we just do it. And it's not, uh, you know, th those are the happiest times of my year often are on some longer expedition where you know exactly what you have to do that day there's no question mark there's no i mean there are certain issues that come up during the day but you're living with few material possessions you're traveling usually with people who who are already or will soon be you know your closest friends in the world like a right. small group of people with a common goal and working towards that goal like that's the secret sauce of like human culture that you know that's what god where we are and uh, you know, I think that us not to the degree that we worship like wealth and we worship creature comforts, it would be super cool if people would maybe worship is a hard word, but people could have that experience to draw on uh, if it was more common for people to have mm. that, you know, small group. Um, uh, Sebastian Younger wrote a really interesting book called Tribes or Tribe. Um, mm. And you know, uh, we work with a lot of military veterans that come out to our place on the GI Bill. And it really gave me a lot of insight into that because in the book he's talking about how people will often uh, miss some of the shittiest times of their life because during that shitty time of their life, they had a small group of people with whom they had a shared common goal and were working towards it all the time. Like, Right. And he interviewed people that when the Nazis were bombing London in World War II, you know, everybody came together. Everybody pulls together. Ice Storm right. of 98, everybody pulls together. And you're able to accomplish so much. And then afterwards, you sort of shake hands and you go on your way and life almost loses its meaning. And, you know, that's right. the experience that, uh, or the, uh, I guess the experience that in speaking with a lot of veterans, you know, after being in the military with you know, the guys they grew th go through the hardest things of their life with, shared common goal, then you get back and, and they want, they expect you to sort of transition and, and, hey, be happy working at Home Depot or whatever, and no one cares. Right. And I think right. that's the, you know, the, the beauty of, I mean, that's the psychological beauty of expedition and expeditionary mm. learning, right? They're in a nutshell. Right. 
yeah, that shared shared pain. <laughs> yeah, and, I, <laughs> and, I mean, and it, good and the good times and all of the above, you know. Yeah, exactly. Comp goal it doesn't necessarily have to be pain, but sometimes right. there's pain. And, but without pain, like pain defines what pleasure is, right? That the two ends Absolutely. of the spectrum, right? You can't have hot without cold. You can't have pain without pleasure, or pleasure without right. pain, or or whatever. But you know, it's it's an interesting philosophical question, and definitely. Uh, I'm always interested in, you know, those are some great campfire discussions, right? Late at night, sitting around trying to figure, figure out those intricacies of the world. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Absolutely. That's fun. So what are, I mean, I know one of your, the main books you'd recommend, but I'm curious what, what books you'd recommend for listeners, um, on really any subject that, uh, we've actually got a, like. like a, bibliography online somewhere oh nice website and broken down by topic and the last topic is in my estimation the 21 most important books for like bushcraft and outdoor living and okay um yeah cool Um, i'll put the link to that in the show notes for sure um yeah there's i mean there's so many great books now and uh again i'm a huge fan of tony nestor's so anything he's written his book on the modern (laughs) hunter gatherer just oh that's awesome uh, i love that book from like a modern perspective whereas a lot of the books on the topic are like you know make your atlatl and then go start chasing down mammoths and you know (laughs) a modern guy like it's not realistic get a 22 and a handful of uh conibear traps and you you know you're not going to starve like and just great advice right but uh absolutely uh, that he that book is in my top 21. I'm a big fan of this guy who wrote during I think the 1940s in Quebec, Labrador, named Paul Provencher, and you can hmm. chase down his books. Um, yeah, he, he would try. He was a forester and he traveled with these native guys. So I'm of the oh, belief wow. that all bushcraft is local. So like if I read a, if I go get uh, uh, what's the book, Survival Arts of the Primitive Paiutes by Margaret Wheat, where she's writing about basically northern Nevada, Great Basin. Right. Not a whole lot that's transferable to my experience in, in you know, northern Maine and the boreal forest. Right. So I highly recommend, like, study local. Find something. Find some materials right. that you can find about your location. But there are, you know, some all-time greats, like Cahansi's Bushcraft is awesome. Dave Westcott's earth skills or is it earth skills or primitive skills but the the compilation of the first 10 years of the society of primitive technology there's two volumes like those are just fantastic right Um, and then uh you know the the thing you get to be an older guy like me you just you just can't really read too many more like how to's so i get really interested in the narratives you know reading about Mm. somebody else's time on the trail and what was their expedition like and those are the ones. And then you pick out little bits, little, you glean little bits of, of information from that. So for right. me, I've read it every year for like the past 20 years. Elliot Merrick's book, True North. If you've mm. never, have you ever heard of that one? <clears throat> I've heard of it through you and it's, it's on my list, it's, it's, <laughs> but I haven't read it yet. Yeah. So he graduated from Yale University in like 1920 something. Right. Um, had a job in a big city. The first five pages is like the ultimate in escapism, and and he, mm. you know he hated he hated getting on the train and going into the city, and you know that that uh, kind of thorough bit about the you know we we are left with the courage of weasels and, and other critters. But so then he says, and I sat right. up one night and shook my fist and I said, I'm getting out, 
and then <laughs> the next page is I got out now I'm I'm working in Labrador, right? So nice. So he meets this nurse, and it's a true story, but it, and it's very well written. So he meets this nurse, they get married, and the the trappers there who live there down near the coast in the fall. They pull canoes 300 miles up the Grand River, these epic like uh -huh. carries around the biggest waterfall in North America and go subsistence hunting and trapping. And then in the wintertime, they throw all their stuff on toboggans and snowshoe back to town 300 miles. And so this True North is his story of going in with the trappers that year. And he writes it in that's such awesome. a way that's, um, you know, sort of the modern narrative is everybody's a, everybody's a badass, everybody's an expert, nobody's going to say, oh, I screwed that up. But, you know, he's right. honest with the reader. And I think that's the, the beauty that's of awesome. it for me is that, you know, he, he wasn't like, and then I... You know, and then I pulled the canoe up the waterfall and laughed at the people who couldn't. He's like, you know, <laughs> the guy shoots himself in the leg and like all oh, this no. crap goes on. And, and But the honesty is what makes it uh, keep coming back. Yeah. Nice. How about you? What would you recommend? Oh, man. Okay. Um, good question. There's so many. Like you said, um, definitely bushcraft is up there on the list. Modern Hunter Gatherer is one of my favorites as well. Um, the one that's that I really, really, really love is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I've heard and of it, but I, again, I haven't, I haven't read it, so it kind of it's you. fantastic. Yeah, I've I've read it once. I'm I'm actually in the middle of it for the second time right now. But um, she's a, I want to say she she's a either Ojibwe or I forget, but she's, she's a native, uh, but she's also a scientist. And so it's her, she, she blends the two schools of thought, um, you know, the native animism perspective of the world and, and being close with the natural world. And then the scientific, which is, you know, looking at the world and learning about it in a different way. And, and she kind of, she kind of blends them together through teaching about different plant species and, and her experiences with them. And it's just extremely well-written and she brings in a lot of uh, native lore and, and things like that. And so I highly recommend that one. Um, let's see another one. I'm currently also reading one called Overstory. And uh, it's really, really good as well. It's more of a novel type, which is not typically what I'm into, but um, it's a Pulitzer Prize winner. It came out last year, I think. And it's a story about basically the love of trees and, and how so far, I'm, I'm not finished with it yet, but so far different people um, have this built some kind of relationship with the tree or with trees, even if they don't know it. And uh, it's, it's coming up into some climactic uh, event, but I'm not sure what it is yet. So I'm excited. So that's a good one nice. overstory. Um, yeah. And then, uh, all, all the ones that you listed as well. I, I haven't read true North, but I'm definitely going to get on that one even more. So now that that's bumped up a couple notches on my list now. So <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So lots of good ones. Yeah. Endless supply of knowledge out there. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, like we said earlier, taking it out there and actually putting it into practice. That's the, that's the key there. So I agree wholeheartedly. Definitely. So how can uh, people get a hold of you, Tim, if they want to contact you about classes or Yeah, the easiest like way is through our website, uh, jackmtn.com, or if you Google Jack Mountain, uh, will likely come up. 
right. and how about you best way to contact yeah you? um you can get it you can any, anyone who wants to contact me directly you can email me at ron at coyotespath.com um you can find this podcast the wilderness and wellness podcast on pretty much any platform uh you can find it on apple Podcasts, uh stitcher spotify iHeartRadio. Um, and then I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. If you just search wilderness and wellness podcast, nice. you'll find me. And then I do have a website, uh, for a little side venture that I'm starting have, that I have started and I'm slowly building up, uh, coyotespath.com is the website. So feel free to check that out. And if you have any questions or anything, shoot them over to my email. Nice. So. Yeah. I was actually having a, uh, one last little story and then we'll, yeah, in. please. Uh, <laughs> so I was sitting with my son this morning and he follows some, he was showing me this YouTube video where these guys were spoofing like, uh, you know, hey guys, be sure to hit the subscribe button down below and like all that, that culture, <laughs> right? Right, he's, right. He's 15, it's, it's pretty funny, but, but then they went on to, and you can get us on, and then the guy listed like, and it was a spoof, but he listed like 700 social media accounts that went on for like six minutes. <laughs> it was absolutely wow. hilarious. That is crazy. Um, yeah. So I'll say, I'll say, uh, yeah, we're on social media as well, but don't follow us. Don't, don't do that. Go out and do something useful. Like stay away there from social media. That's the beauty of podcasts, right? You can download them and listen to them when you're walking. And, right. Uh, don't even have to get on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, Ron, it's been fantastic speaking with you. Likewise, Tim. Thank and, you. Uh, let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. I'm down with that. Awesome. All right, my friend. You have been listening to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. For more information on our professional wilderness guide training programs that are college accredited and GI Bill approved, visit us on the web at jackmtn.com.